Hey, Dante. Hey, Hannah. We're back for another episode. Yes, but before we get into this episode, we have a very special announcement for the community. Yes, if you like and listen to this show, we are thrilled to let you know that we will be hosting a live podcast recording during our Leadership Summit conference this year. Yes, our live episode will feature panelists from our past episodes. So all those episodes that you loved and listened to, and we're going to talk to them about what their experiences were like. So join us for that live recording. Yes, if you're interested, um, head on over to dbsalliance.org slash leadership summit to find out more. And we hope to see you there. Now, today we are going to hear from Gwyneth. And she titled her episode, I'm Living Proof, My Mental Health is Not a Curse. It's really a great conversation, and I'm so excited for you all to listen to it now. Gwyneth really opens up about her experiences as a young child experiencing a mood disorder and and talks about all the different efforts that she went to get the right treatment. I think Gwyneth has really, really persevered, and I just think this is an incredible uh, conversation that you that you shared with her, Dante. Yeah, Gwyneth's unique perspective of living with a mood disorder from so early on um, is very eye-opening. And the conversation I had with her is a little different than we had with other participants who, um, you know, uh, they were more aware of their mental health a little later in life. So Gwyneth's perspective is one that I think a lot of people will benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's just a lot of, of rich, rich things that you all covered. So I'm excited for folks to listen now. Yeah. So without further ado, let's hear from Gwyneth. Dear Gwyneth, I know you're having a hard time right now imagining better days. I remember at age four when you bravely started therapy and got your first diagnosis, panic disorder, how confused you were to experience a mental health crisis when you were barely old enough to speak. The hallucinations, the dissociation, the voices, the panic attacks, the night terrors, the shifting moods. It made you feel scared of yourself and your brain. And most of all, it made you wonder what you had done wrong to deserve a childhood like that. It felt like a curse. And now you're scared because you're entering high school and these things haven't gone away. Soon you'll get your bipolar one disorder and complex PTSD diagnoses. You'll fight through three hard, long hospitalizations. You'll have college interviews and ACTs and high school memories all stolen by that psych ward. You'll battle self-harm. You'll go on medications that feel like they're failing you. You'll be laughed at by nurses when they tell you that you can't go to college. You'll question every day if you'll ever find happiness or if you'll live in a cycle of mental health crisis forever. But you know what happens next? You'll learn to ask for help. You'll graduate with a full international baccalaureate diploma. You'll be accepted into Georgetown University and you'll lead disability advocacy there by telling these same stories that you once worked so hard to hide. You'll finally get the accommodations that you need, even if it was hard asking for them. You'll stick with therapy for 16 years. You'll travel all over the world. You'll stumble upon your dream career. You'll dedicate yourself to self-harm recovery. You'll relapse and you'll brush yourself off and try again. And it will all be worth it when you get to host your first six months clean party with your friends. 
You'll dedicate yourself to an eight-month DBT program. You'll get an adorable emotional support kitten named Eloise who will give you a reason to wake up every morning and get out of bed. You'll even, and I know this is hard to imagine, experience days where you don't think about your mental health at all. I can't tell you that you'll have magically cured any of your diagnoses as a young adult. I still have episodes. I still get manic or depressed or panicked or paranoid. I still have setbacks and I still get scared of myself from time to time. And I continue to struggle every day with accepting that I will never get my childhood back. But in a strange way, I'm glad that my mental illnesses will never be cured. I've learned that I actually don't want them to be because these conditions are not the curse that you think they are. They'll build you into a creative, insightful, resilient, brave, empathetic, and empowered adult. They'll close doors for you that, in the end, open even better ones. And though it often feels like it comes at too hefty a cost, that nothing could ever be worth a lifetime of mental health struggles, I would never want you to lose those special qualities. It may not be easy, but it is a part of you, a beautiful part. So next time you look in the mirror, don't be scared of what you see. You are not some monster. You and your brain are okay just as they are. And one day when you enter your 20s, you'll be proud of that brain for all the ways it protected you over the years, even when you feared it, and all the battles it fought quietly behind the scenes so that you could still achieve all your goals and all the pain it endured and failed to endure while you judged it for doing so. You'll make peace with it, maybe even grow to feel grateful for it, but most importantly, you will never let your brain stop you from experiencing your life. How do I know all of this is true? Because I am living proof. Love your 20-year-old self. Gwyneth, thank you for sharing that story with us. Yeah, no uh -oh. problem. <laughs> yeah, I immediately, I have to ask, you start your letter off by letting us know that you were four years old when you received your first mental health diagnosis. You know, some people have a very hard time um, even forming memories so young, but what was that experience for you? Like that, it seems like it's a, memory that you that is stamped in your mind right now yes it is and it's funny that you use the word memory because like one of the things that stands out to me about my childhood is that like you know people always ask you what's the first thing you can remember what's your first memory and for me like it was an episode where I was hallucinating in my parents bed like that is my first memory of life that I can recall um and I think that that sort of set me up for my entire life you know having a childhood like that and having to go through a mental health crisis so early. Um, and obviously for other people, if they don't experience mental health issues until they're an adult, that comes with its own set of hardships. Um, but I do think it's a very unique experience to have to go through therapy for 16 years and, you know, to have to have a lot of your childhood tainted by um, mood episodes and um, psychosis and things. So yeah, it, I mean, it formed me into who I am now, but it certainly made my childhood unique. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I commend you. There's no way at four, I don't think I would have been able to even understand 
what was happening to me. And I mean, you talk about that a little bit. You didn't really understand what was happening to you. What was that process like? Did your parents notice something? I was fairly communicative as much as I could be as a young person, but I explained that, you know, I had been hearing voices and they saw that my mood was off and I was having constant panic attacks and all of that was very like visual. They could tell Mm -hmm. um, that that was going on. And so you know, we went to the doctor and one of the struggles of dealing with mental health so early uh, is that they can't diagnose you with a lot of these bigger diagnoses because you're just too young. And so it was always a question of like, is this just a kid with a big imagination and it's going to go away in three years? Or is this like something actually serious and we should get help? And I often wonder like if they hadn't thought that it could maybe just be my imagination maybe I could have gotten help earlier, you know, but how productive are questions like that? Um, but, but yeah, so that is one of the problems is that you do have to wait so long in life before they're able to actually officially diagnose you with like a lot of these, um, mental illnesses. So that's a barrier. Um, and obviously the communication piece, I didn't know what I was talking about. Like I do now, um, about mental health. So. Right. You said when you were young, there was a period of time where you felt scared of yourself and you wondered what you had done wrong to deserve this dealing with this mental health condition. Um, Were there people in your life who eventually helped you understand that it wasn't your fault? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I still think about those questions every once in a while now as an adult, um, because it is sort of like you look around and you see other people having these, like, I hate to use the word normal, but like more Mm -hmm. conventional childhoods. And you sort of ask yourself, like, why am I in this position? (laughs) You know, like, why am I experiencing all these horrible things every single day? And other kids are just getting to, you know, go have play dates and um, enjoy watching TV. And like all those kinds of memories for me are super tainted by mental health episodes that happened all the time during those like traditional childhood things. So I did question a lot, like, what had I done to make this happen? And now I have really worked super hard to reframe it as not like this bad thing that I got for some reason that I must have done something wrong or that like, you know, who knows, but I reframe it as like, in the long run, it's a good thing. It's taught me resilience. It's taught me all these other positive attributes that I have now as an adult. Um, And it's allowed me to be super empathetic because other people who have other struggles not even mental health related that they went through in their own childhoods and into early adulthood. Um, I can really relate to what that feels like to sort of mourn your own childhood and, you know, mourn experiences that you had. So um, I would say that that's a really good gift. I'm really grateful for it. So yeah, I sort of had to rework that, but I did a lot of that work on my own, to be honest, there wasn't like a huge support system that I had to teach me that that was true. It was really just like a lot of self-reflection and, like necessary self-reflection. It was sort of like a barrier to recovery. So I had to, I had to figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the challenge of going through therapy, understanding you're asking a four-year-old to understand a mental health condition. Yeah. You're also asking your parents to understand that their child is going through. I could imagine that um, there wasn't a lot of things around that were super helpful that you yourself had to understand as you, you know, grew up, I do, we don't talk a lot about, um, like children and therapy, or at least we haven't in our previous episodes. Was there one thing that you remember from therapy that was like super helpful to you when you were younger? 
The thing I would say is that, um, especially for young kids who are, whether you're in um, middle school, high school, you know, times where you're already in the position where you realize that certain things are socially acceptable and certain Mm -hmm. things aren't. Um, That's sort of like the time in life. Childhood is when you learn, like, this is the thing that other people do. And then whatever I do, that's different. Like I need to stop doing. Um, So one of the problems I faced in therapy was that I would sort of front a lot and act like, you know, these things that were happening weren't actually happening and that I was completely fine. I would bring up a lot of topics that were super basic. Like I would try and focus on my family or my friends instead of what was actually going on with my mental health, because I was too afraid to be too different than other kids. And I think that is a big barrier that a lot of kids in therapy face because you're so constantly aware of acting like a normal kid and being socially accepted. So the therapist that I had that tried to push past those topics and sort of like allow me to feel comfortable expressing that there were things that were maybe less attractive to share or less um, common to share, that those things are actually the most important things to share. (laughs) That was really helpful. And it was super rare. I had to switch therapists like so many times every year I was switching to someone new, which is totally normal. And I suggest that all the time. Like it's not a big deal at all, but Um, it was because I couldn't find someone that would push me further to like actually share what was going on and not be so concerned about what other people were thinking. So, yeah, it reminds me of like when someone has, um, is, has therapy on TV for the first time and they're like, I don't need to really be here. Exactly. You know, it reminds (laughs) me of that. And then, you know, that they're, hopefully the therapist is able to push, you know, push past those surface level things. And on the other hand, who could, you know, I, I certainly don't blame you. You're in high school. Literally society is telling you like these, this is the parameters in which you're supposed to, you know, act and be yourself in. And then you're, you're like, well, also something is happening, you know, Mm -hmm. in my brain. So, and trying to, you know, be normal. So I, I get that. And I would, I would also say that like, the work that's happened with destigmatizing mental health in the mm-hmm. last few years, like that was simply not a thing when I was in elementary school. Like I used to tell people I had yoga after school, like art class, like when I was back in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, because it was not like now when I'm in college, I have people I barely know tell me they're heading to their therapy appointment. It's just like, we're in a very different culture, mental health wise. Yes. And I did not ben- like reap the rewards from that when I was younger because it was simply like we hadn't made that progress yet. Um, so it also that was another barrier was like constantly like not benefiting from where we are now with like being able to share more. Yeah, I'm, I'm very open, uh, you know, since the pandemic uh, it was the first time I took up therapy yeah. and I, you know, I'm very vocal about it. Like, yeah, I have therapy on Tuesdays. Like, that's what I have to do. And yeah. you're right you know, maybe four or five years ago, even I may not have said that I may have said something other like, Oh, I have a meeting or yeah. Like yeah. Now I don't care. I have therapy. Uh, you should be, you should probably have therapy too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, switching gears a little bit, or I guess not. We, we've been talking about high school, but you write to yourself that um, you, it seems like these feelings and the, I guess like maybe as you were entering high school, you thought that some of this stuff would go away. Did you have an expectation about entering high school that wasn't met? Or was it like very, very difficult for you because you thought that, I don't know, maybe the 
the symptoms would subside a little bit? Well, I just thought like, like I said, you know, when you get diagnosed with stuff so early in childhood or um, you start therapy early, like they can't give you those bigger diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And so I did have a lot of people in my life, I think, including myself, that was sort of just crossing our fingers that it just wasn't going to turn into like anything real when I reached an age where they actually could diagnose me with some of the things that we thought it might be. And so I thought I could just sort of denial my way out of it that like, you know, I would reach an age where they could finally assess me for bipolar one or for psychosis or PTSD or whatever. And um, I thought that I would reach that time in my life and they would go, nope, like it really was just a childhood imagination thing. And I was sort of gaslighting myself as well, that maybe I was making up a lot of these symptoms. I know tons of people do that. Um, So yeah, my hope was that it would go away. And that was not the case. (laughs) Yeah. Again, super understandable. And then you outlined that. So you were in high school and then you outlined that you had um, three hospitalizations um, and you went through a a myriad of um, feelings there. But it also seems like the healthcare staff there wasn't necessarily the most supportive. What did that feel like? Oh, my gosh, that was awful because Uh, So my first hospitalization was towards the end of my junior year. Mm -hmm. So basically I had, so yeah, I had, I had two hospitalizations end of my junior year and one hospitalization, the start of my senior year, which are the two Mm -hmm. worst times in my opinion, because in terms of college and, you know, things like that. Um, So when I was um, in the hospital, especially when I was in the hospital um, as a senior, um, I had actually missed my Georgetown interview because Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital and I spent an entire week as it was leading up to the interview, begging the nurses to give me access to a computer so that I could send the interviewer an email and be like, Hey, unfortunately something has come up and I can't attend. And I spoke to every nurse in the entire facility and no one believed me that I actually had a Georgetown interview. And it wasn't until the day before my interview that I was able to speak to my psychiatrist who knew enough about me and had seen my records to know that it was possible that I wasn't lying. And so he like secretly snuck me his phone and I was able to send an email off of his cell phone. Um, But yeah, they, they really did not, there, there is a, inherent, uh, I, I talk about it like a presumption of incompetence. Mm-hmm. There's a presumption of incompetence a lot with um, kids who end up in psych wards or hospitals or whatever, and people who have more like different mental health conditions. There's an assumption that they can't achieve certain things because X, Y, Z number of people have not been able to do so that have the same condition. Um, and that was like one of the things that I was battling. And also in my junior year hospitalizations, um, they told me to drop out entirely. Like I had a doctor who told me to drop out of high school. When I got back to high school, they told me like that um, I needed to drop the IB diploma, all my extracurriculars and switch to only like two or three classes for the entire year. Um, And I had people tell me to take a year off. All things that were ignoring who I was, which is someone who thrives through academia, someone who loves school, someone who gets healthier the more I'm in school and the more I get to work and achieve and learn. Um, so sort of like they were looking more at past precedent and not who was sitting right there in front of them in these meetings. Right. And so I had to fight a lot to continue with my education and it worked out like, <laughs> so, you know, you know yourself better than anybody else is the biggest takeaway from that. 
Yeah, it was almost like they were addressing your diagnosis and not addressing yeah. a person, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, we hear that a lot from peers in our community where, you know, we're more than a diagnosis or, you know, the clinical approach to things sometimes leaves out the human aspect, the human, the per- the actual person. Yeah. Um, go through this. I, um, I don't know, I'm in shock hearing that, that these, this medical staff, these, the people who are there to take care of you and help you were the ones who were um, a, a big obstacle for you and yeah. your perseverance um, to, you know, being able to get through this is, <sighs> I don't know if I could have done it, you know, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that you were strong enough to do it and, and that, you know, you did, you were able to reach out to someone who was in your corner. And I guess now I'm wondering, like, is there advice that you would that you have for someone who is um, about to prepare for hospitalization or maybe have has experienced hospitalization and know that um, it's in their future? Is there any like any tips or anything you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, hospitalization is hard because um, and I did both um, inpatient and outpatient, like partial mm-hmm. hospitalization as well. Um, and it is really difficult. It's so scary. Like you are with a bunch of strangers after most likely something traumatic has happened. And, um, you know, you, I think the biggest thing that I learned from hospitalization is that you expect that when you get out of the hospital, that you are now like this recovered person that you've like Mm. reached some other side and it's just an upward trajectory from there. Um, and that kind of pressure, I think, slowed my reco- like my ability to get better when I was in the hospital, because every day that went by, I was like, why am I not on the other side of this? Like, you know, why am I not better? Um, and that's just not how it works. At the end of the day, a hospital is to keep you safe and healthy for a period of time to hopefully fix your medication or to talk to someone. Um, and then the real work starts when you leave. (laughs) And, you know, I didn't understand that. And so when I was in my second hospitalization, I took the pressure off myself. I was like, I'm here to get safe and healthy so I can leave, not to walk out as some cured, you know, perfect person with impeccable mental health. Um, And so when I realized that I was able to recover a little faster that time, get out, and dedicate a lot of the hard work in the following weeks, which is when I started the DBT to doing the actual work, um, which Mm -hmm. again, always follows after the hospitalization, not really during. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because again, all our depictions of hospitalization in the media um, or from society seems to, you know, um, lead us to the thought that once you're out of the hospital, you're you're good, you're, you're better, that person has yeah. gone to treatment, it's better, and like you said, that's the start of the journey a lot of the times, um, so that's, that's really profound. Yeah, and that, that fear is, like, I think what led me to my second hospitalization, my third hospitalization in my senior year, because I was back in a lot of the cycles that I had been in, unhealthy mm-hmm. cycles I had been in, in my junior year, and I couldn't wrap my head around that. I was, like, why am I not on a perfect upwards trajectory? Like I've already been hospitalized. So now I should be 
on a permanent upward slope towards a healthier person rather than like back in old habits, back in old mood cycles. Um, and the reality is that's just not the way it goes. Like sometimes when you're working on yourself, you have ups and you have downs. And I think if I had accepted that and been like, it's okay to have this bump that maybe I wouldn't have had that, um, that third hospitalization where I felt like I was just in a endless cycle of, I was always going to be in a mental health crisis. Um, so it's an important realization that recovery can be a little bumpy. <laughs> what yeah. was it like to transition from hospitalization back to school? It was okay in some ways because I did really love school and I mm -hmm. used it as a way to not have to focus too much on everything that was going on inside my head. And I was able to get back on track. Um, but I mean, at a bare minimum, like when I got out of my first hospitalization, I had missed about three weeks of school. On top of that, I was then entering into a partial hospitalization. So every day after school for like four hours, I still had to go back to the hospital and, um, you know, do my programming. And so all these other juniors are taking their final exams and, you know, working on their college applications and all these super important monumental life events. Right. And I had maybe like one hour at night to do my homework. <laughs> and so, wow. you know, like that was one of the things that I look back on and I'm like, I don't think I was patient enough with myself and proud enough of myself for doing that because, and, and that was still with all my extracurriculars and all my goals and all the volunteering. And I was trying to keep up with everyone else's pace and not recognizing that I had this extra burden. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a major challenge. And also, like I said, not, I had to remind my, my teachers at the time, like, don't expect me to suddenly be better. Right. Like, the work starts now. So you need to be patient with me. And that was another thing that I had to sort of, um, work through. And, and the worst thing was definitely when it fell during college season, mm -hmm. um, because there's just, there's just so many things you can't miss. I, I missed my ACT like three or four times, um, actually. So yeah, I had to end up going with my score that I had taken just as a fake practice exam. That's like what I ended up submitting to colleges. So <laughs> yeah. And you probably yeah. missed all like early enrollment stuff. I miss, I miss all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and you think about like how much of a leg up those things can give certain students. And yeah. then we don't think about like students who are living with mental health um, conditions or anything that could come up and the pressure just to like, you just finished high school, take the ACT, get into a good school, you know? Yeah. And there's not a lot of flexibility in nope. high schools. Like um, I think I ended up missing like 90 classes my senior year mm -hmm. um, or 110 or some, some large number. Um, and you know, that was, that was a challenge because unlike in college, high schools are pretty rigid and they don't allow for a lot of flexibility. Um, and you're right. It's not just people with mental health issues, all kinds of personal issues come up yep. for people. And so, you know, we need a little more patience. Yeah. Flexibility. <laughs> We do, especially with 16, 17, 18 year olds, yes. right? Absolutely. Yeah. But you go on to do incredible things such as, you know, graduating IB, going to Georgetown, leading, um, uh, being a figure in the disability advocacy world. When you wrote all these accomplishments down, how did it feel to reflect back and talk, tell those things to your younger self? It was amazing. And what I was actually shocked by writing this letter is that when it came to writing my accomplishments down, like I thought I would be picking like 
awards that I had won or, you know, like GPAs or things like that. And I wasn't, I was writing primarily things related to like hard work I had put in with Mm -hmm. my mental health or like, you know, accomplishments that happened during and despite like what was going on. So um, that makes me happy to know that, you know, in adulthood, I look back on my life and it's like the things I'm most proud of, you know, came out of and were born out of some of my biggest challenges. Um, And that I'm proud of the mental health stuff, you know, the disability advocacy, the, you know, um, different programs I had to fight through. Mm -hmm. that's like not what I usually think of when I think of accomplishments. Um, I usually think like, oh, those are embarrassing things that you don't want to talk about. You know, I would never think of a a DBT program or an emotional support animal or accommodations as something that I should be proud of. Um, And then when I wrote the letter, that's not the way I felt. So that's good. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times about uh, a DBT program. And in your letter, you wrote that, you know, you completed an eight month DBT program. I like our audience, I'm sure we're curious as to what a DBT program actually is. Would you mind explaining that to us? Yeah, absolutely. So when I got out of the third hospitalization, they basically said that, um, be that I needed to continue some kind of programming and Mm -hmm. I could do either a DBT or I could do a partial hospitalization and I didn't want to lose out on my senior year. So I chose the um, DBT program, which is um, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, And it was uh, primarily to address my different addictions, but it was also to help with mood um, Mm -hmm. related to the bipolar. So it's like, you know, a couple of kids come together and you meet every single week and you have homework. (laughs) Like I had sometimes more homework from that than my regular classes. Um, So it is like an actual, it's all about self-reliance and you putting in a lot of work and a lot of time and you learn different skills. You learn like, um, you know, if I'm in, if I'm having some kind of episode and I can't control my mood, what are things that I can do? Like different skills that I can pull out of my toolbox to get through it. And that put a lot more power back in my corner to be able to do something about how I was feeling. And I think a lot of people struggle to find a way to do something about how they're feeling. Um, So that's what I really loved about the program. And um, I think in the end, it was worth it. Um, I mean, I went to college a lot more steady and stable than I was before the program. So, yeah. Um, In a lot of letters, um, in our previous letters, we hear people talk about their experience when, you know, their mental health becomes salient to them. But before that, they have this period of like suffering and silence for a bit of time. But from your letter, it doesn't seem like that necessarily was the case for you. Um, Do you think that your willingness to share your story? Do you think that you were willing to share your story so early because you live with your mental health condition for such an early age? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's what I meant when I said that like people who learn about their diagnoses in early adulthood um, or even later have their own hardships and challenges that I didn't experience because it is true. Like I have been operating in the, like, I know the mental health vocabulary. I've been operating under the assumption that I have these different conditions for my entire life. And so for me, it's not like, it's, it's pretty normal to talk about. And I'm not so much in denial, um, because I've had so much time to kind of accept what my reality is. And 
Um, I've had so many times where I had to advocate for myself. Um, mm -hmm. and you can't stay silent in those instances. Like if no one speaks up, I would have had to drop out of high school. I would have, you know, all these things that other people wanted for me. So, um, I had a lot of opportunities to put into practice being open and speaking about my mental health. So by the time I got into college, doing like a lot of the disability advocacy and sharing mm -hmm. my story and stuff like that was a lot easier because I had already fought so many battles, even coming to Georgetown, they almost didn't give me housing because they said that I was too disabled to live independently. Um, so that was another time where I had to speak up and share my story. And so, you know, it's a shame that it falls on the shoulders of, um, you know, people struggling with these things to do the work themselves and to share their stories. It shouldn't, people should just naturally make things more accessible and easier and open for people. But that being said, that's not the way it is. And so I am very grateful that like I had time to practice um, and it really is just about practice. So yeah. And self-advocacy is so important, but yeah. giving people the tools um, so they can learn how to be an advocate for themselves is um, probably a thing that's not more important, but super important as well. And yeah. it, it speaks to some of the work that you do for <laughs> The young adult council here yes. <laughs> um, you are very much into making sure people have the tools so that they can talk um for themselves yeah you write that you are glad that your mental health condition can never be cured that it builds you into being a creative insightful resilient brave empathetic and empowered adult how do you think you were able to come to this perspective and what growth experiences needed to happen for you to make these qualities more salient for you yeah, this was a hard one. And I really think that once you're able to like, think about things in this way, like it gets so much easier, but it was a, it was a hard thing to come to this realization. Um, honestly, I think that um, I was sort of always wondering like how much of my mental health is giving me my good qualities, giving me my bad qualities, like What's my personality if I just didn't have mental health issues? Like, I think that's a question a lot of people think about, you know, like, am I only creative because I have manic episodes? And, you know, does that then mean that I don't want the mania to go away or that I'm glad that I'm bipolar? Or, you know, do I only get angry because I'm bipolar? And therefore, mm -hmm. do I, you know, questions like that. Um, and I've sort of come to a nice middle ground, which is that like, I think it's not that I think that I would not be creative or I would not be empathetic if I didn't have these mental health conditions. Like, I'm sure I'm a good person regardless, but, um, you know, the, the bipolar and all these other conditions did really give me a chance to understand other people's hardships and, you know, to understand emotions and to put into practice advocacy and to, you know, um, learn how to do things in a different way. And so it just gave me more opportunities to like gain these really cool attributes that I now get to celebrate. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think like coming to that realization that there are good things about having the life that I've had um, and that I wouldn't wish, like wish it away. Um, it was really important for me to come to that realization, especially entering into college so that I wouldn't spend the rest of my life like wishing I could go back and redo my life or wishing that I had life a different way. Um, because I think 
had I continued to think that way, it's just so hard to move forward. Gotcha. We, you've heard us talk a lot about how your journey, um, your wellness journey is in a straight line, right? And one of the hardest things for people living with mental health conditions, uh, living with a mood disorder um, to um, recover from, so to speak, are setbacks. And you, throughout your letter, weave in when you had setbacks, how how do you recover from setbacks now? And, you know, was there a tool or was there something in your past that you were like, yes, this is how I'm going to move forward and, and deal with those setbacks? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the like best examples I have is with my like um, self-harm addiction, because, you know, the way I think about it is like, I always think that like, whatever time period is going to be my last step backwards. And then I'm just going to be open road, like into a healthy adulthood without dealing with that issue. Um, And then every once in a while, it pops back up as a problem that I have to re deal with and re recover from. Um, But I've noticed that every time the gap gets bigger. So like I said, in my letter, like I had a six month clean party, I'm actually about to hit a year So, you know, I never had gaps that big. Thank you. (laughs) I never had gaps that big in my whole life. Like it started off as like one day and then it would, then I'd face another relapse and then maybe a week and then maybe a month. And, you know, and again, sometimes it's not perfect. Sometimes it's a month and then two weeks again, and then it's three months. But in general, the trend is that as you realize that every time you actually are willing to try again, that is so empowering. And that is what I think causes these longer, longer gaps is because you think to yourself, like, I didn't give up last time. I tried again last time and I'm going to try again this time. And it's just like, it gives yourself back some of that power. The other thing I'd say is like, you know, not being afraid to celebrate with the people that you love and Mm -hmm. to really see it as an accomplishment, just like you would any other accomplishment, almost as if you won an award, because it's honestly so hard and it's so awesome. (laughs) And I don't think enough people celebrate things like that because they don't think that other people are going to want to celebrate things like that. But honestly, like I had more people show up for my six months clean party than for my birthday. And that's the way it should be. So um, yeah, like allowing other people to celebrate your accomplishments also push you forward. If you face relapses or bumps in your recovery or whatever, like you should feel proud of yourself every time you try again. And again, like, that's just the way you have to think about it. Like this wasn't a setback because the next day you try it again and that's even more impressive. So yeah. Yeah. Don't just celebrate those life milestones that are traditional yeah, things. Exactly. Celebrate accomplishments in mental health as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. That's great I really advice. believe in that. <laughs> um, what is a wellness tip that you do today that you would like to share with our audience? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I have two, I would say like the first is actually something that I learned when I was in uh, one of my hospitalizations and it's super specific, but I'm going to like suggest it anyway, which is that you take like an old book um, Mm -hmm. and you basically do blackout poetry, which is like 
Um, you know, you block out all the words except the one that makes a poem and you like collage on the book. And basically like anytime I've had a bad experience, bad day, bad mood episode, whatever, I make a new page in that book and I just keep it going and keep it going. And I've had that book since my very first hospitalization and to look back on it and see all the things that I struggled with and have made, made it through, um, has been amazing, but also just the simple act of like focusing on something for four or five hours that has no, like no one's ever going to see it. It's, it Mm -hmm. doesn't bring me any kind of like money reward, like nothing. It is simply for myself. Um, like we don't do enough things like that anymore. Like things that have no other benefits except to like keep ourselves calm and happy. So, um, finding a task like that is, is the thing that kept me going for a very long time. Um, and then the other thing I would say is like, Um, I used to get so mad when I had um, different medical professionals like emphasize sleep (laughs) because I was like, (laughs) it's so much more than sleep. Like if I got good sleep, like I would not just feel better. And it's true. We emphasize sleep here. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) I will not just feel better. It's true. But honestly, like sleep is good. (laughs) Sleep is really good. And like, I am doing so much better when I'm able to get like a normal amount of sleep. So um, if that means giving up something that someone else can do because sleep isn't like so necessary for them, I'm okay with that. I have to live Mm -hmm. with that and move forward because I have matured and learned that they were maybe not wrong, that like sleep is important. (laughs) Got it. So get lots of sleep, which if you follow us on social media, we're always advocating for you to get more sleep and then take an old book yes and do blackout poetry and you do blackout poetry and it's so awesome and actually like a lot of people that I was hospitalized with like learned from me how to do that and took Mm -hmm. it forward with them and they're still doing it to this day so like I promise it works (laughs) Yeah. yeah those might that the blackout poetry might be the most unique wellness tip I've heard you know a very long time so yeah I maybe you know Gwyneth maybe you can do a demonstration for all of I you. would love that <laughs> yeah <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing your story and talking with um, us today yeah of course thank you so much